and welcome to sunny Miami and the Hard Rock Stadium stage for the first ATP Masters 1000 of the year, the Miami Open presented by Ito. I'm standing literally in the middle of the Hard Rock Stadium pitch, home of the Miami Dolphins. Two years ago, this was home to the center court. This year, it is nothing more than a playground and a warm-up zone for the players. What a week it has been, hot and humid with temperatures up over 30 degrees Celsius. Windy too at times, we've had upsets among the seeds and more breakthroughs for new young stars. We've also had some peerless tennis from the new members of the game's elite. Over the next half hour or so, we'll round up the best of the action and the latest on the draw. We'll also hear from former world number six, Wayne Ferreira, who's now coaching American hope Francis Tiafo. And we're with two of the young American players here in Miami, Ernesto Escobedo and Mackie McDonald, both of whom have done so much to come back from injury. So much to come, but first let's look back on an enthralling first week of action with ATP tennis radio commentators Gigi Salmon and Chris Bowers. Chris, the wonderful thing I found is that after all the talking points and, and the headlines coming into Miami, we're now just talking about the tennis. The tennis is well underway and it's been great to this point. Yes, and then even though we are missing some of the big names, it doesn't feel like it. In fact, it feels like we're probably two years ahead of ourselves because I suspect the leading names in the draw will be the players right at the top of men's tennis in two years' time. And, and yes, at the moment, we need to see the glass as 90% full rather than 10% empty um, because in a situation where the world is still struggling with this really vicious virus and, and has a global pandemic, we've got a tennis tournament going on and most of the world's top players are there. And there's quality tennis. So yeah. in a way, there's a lot to be thankful for. What more do you need? And one thing we have been talking about in the absence of five members of the top 10 and other players who for various reasons aren't here, it's given the opportunity to others. Daniel Medvedev, We'll get on to talking about him. It's his first Masters as a top seed, but also the young players looking to prove themselves on one of tennis's biggest stages. And wasn't it amazing to see two of the uh, brightest names, the biggest tip names, uh, Emil Roussevori and uh, Carlos Alcaraz, playing each other in the first round and going to a long three-setter? I mean, that was fascinating to watch. Uh, as, as I was watching that, I thought... I wonder if this is going to be a Grand Slam final in five, six, seven years from now. It's great though, isn't it? It's great seeing them go toe-to-toe -to -toe and the different characters, completely different characters. And Roussevori is so cool, calm and collected. He comes through against Alcaraz. Then he's taking on Sasha Zverev. Now, in our predictions, Chris, you predicted Zverev? No, who predicted no, Zverev to win the whole thing? Uh, Miles McLaggen. Miles McLaggen yes. picked him. And you can see that. He'd won Acapulco. And even I was having a discussion with someone saying maybe tennis-wise, this is a turning point for Zverev. And maybe he'll kick on from here. So for Roussevori to come out and do what he did against Zverev was very, very impressive. It was very impressive from Roussevori's perspective. It showed that... Uh, he was able to learn in the course of a match, losing the first set 6-1. He was still able to realise what he was doing wrong and get himself into the match and eventually win it. So it shows that he's not scared of reputations. From Sverev's perspective, it was interesting because, you know, for most of his career, Sverev's been part of the young generation. He's been one of the standard bearers, you know, former uh, Australian Open junior champion, came within two points of winning the US Open last September. And here is a young gun, couple of years younger than him 
really going for him and beating him on a uh, decent stage. So I felt that was fascinating in the sense that Rusevori, we mustn't assume that because he's beaten Sverev, he's now able to beat all the top tenors. Um, it doesn't quite work like that. And he will have two steps forward and one step back. But it shows to me that Rusevori is, I hesitate to say the real deal, but that the hype about him is well-founded. And if you listen to him talking, he seems incredibly well-grounded. And given that being a good tennis player is probably about 20% about what your strokes are like, and the rest is whether you can handle all the other crazy elements, whether your body will uh, hold up, whether you can handle the nomadic existence on the tour, whether you can think on your feet when matches suddenly change direction. He seems to have the, uh, the full package. And he's got a wonderful opportunity in the second quarter of the draw. Now with Sasha Zverev gone and Grigor Dimitrov has, has gone as well. We've got Yannick Sinner, if we're keeping this theme of, of young players still in there. Karen Hashanov is the highest seed at 14. But another young guy that we've been talking about is Lorenzo Massetti. Now he burst onto the scene on the clay in Rome and he was doing well on the clay. Could he transfer it to other services? Was it just going to be clay where he stands out? No, it's not, because he's proven he can also translate his game to the hard courts. Yeah, I was interested in how he would um, press on after um, his exploits in Rome, because he was on the front cover of a fashion magazine. And I thought, hmm, is this all happening a little bit too early? But actually, he's handling it. He's handling it very, very well. And uh, his two matches, uh, first two matches have both been in straight sets and he's looking good and he looks like the kind of guy who doesn't get phased by uh, missing a few points throwing a couple of bad games in he also seems to know exactly how to work his points and one of the things that I was impressed about was that he plays a fundamentally clay court game on a hard court so he's playing to his strengths but making a few minor adjustments to do with the surface rather than saying oh I have to uh, rethink the way I play tennis when I play on a hard court if he wasn't a tennis player, he'd be an actor. Well, he could be there's a poker a, player, couldn't he? Because it doesn't give that much away. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the young players, 21-year-old and younger in the top 100, Shapovalov at 11, Felix Ogieliasim at 20, Sinner 29, this is not their ages, Ketsmanovic 45, Davidovich Vikina 57, Mute 75, Rusevori 79, Popperin 81, Korda 81, and Massetti at 90, which tells us that the future is bright. Yeah, because there's a real mixture of styles in all that lot. I mean, uh, we talk about Alcaraz and uh, Rusevori. They play the sort of the modern idiom of tennis. Big forehand, big two-handed backhand, big serve, can construct points, don't tend to come to the net more than they have to, although uh, all the young players can volley. But then you've got players like Corda and Mazzetti, who play more varied tennis. They play charismatic tennis. And then you've got players like uh, Shapovalov and um, Tsitsipas, who, you know, are still in the early part of their professional careers. And, and they will provide a real contrast in styles, because for me, the, the excitement of watching a tennis match is two people who play tennis in different ways, one going against the other. It's what um, people used to refer to as, you know, the boxer against the fighter um, in, in boxing parlance. One had the, the technique and the uh, the tactics, the other one just, just went for it. And in a way, you like to see clashes of styles in, in, in all sorts of different sports. And I worried for a while that the new generation would 
play too much the same way. But there's plenty of variety among all those people. And I think that's what makes the future of men's tennis so exciting. Now, I'm going to talk about him as if he's an old man, but he only recently really turned 25. Daniel Medvedev, our newest world number two. The first time in a Masters, he's the top seed. Would it affect him? Will he feel nervous? Will he carry the weight of expectation? No, if his first match is anything to go by. Maybe that's why he grew the moustache, so that he'd actually deflect attention. From I wondered how long the moustache would take to get in there. <laughs> no, I mean, he's... Uh, what, what I think is impressive about him is that his last 18 months have been a, an inexorable but highly impressive march forward. Then he had that setback. He was outclassed in the Australian Open final by a player who was supposed to be carrying an abdominal injury, Novak Djokovic. And it would have been easy for Medvedev to think, oh, OK, well, I thought I was doing well. I'm clearly still a long way off the very top. But he has bounced back. He's played very well in the weeks since he got back from Australia. And uh, yes, I'm not saying he'll win this tournament, but he is playing like a member of the world's top two. And don't forget, he's the first person outside the big four of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray to be in the top two for over 15 years. And he's not superstitious. He said it, it, this isn't, the moustache is not a superstition thing. At the end of the tournament, he tried Just it. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, it's coming off, but it already has its own Twitter account. <laughs> now, in the predictions I touched on ATP Tennis Radio, together with Tennis TV, before every Masters, we predict someone from one to eight, nine to 16, and from the rest of the pack. We've both gone for his countryman and his friend, Andre Rublev. What made you land on the side of Rublev? Form. Uh, I think Rublev is in good form. I know Medvedev is too. Um, I'm slightly worried that they might end up playing each other in the final because I think Medvedev has Rublev's number. Or actually, not so much Medvedev has Rublev's number. I'm not sure if Rublev really believes he can beat Medvedev. And there's an interesting article on the uh, ATP website about uh, Rublev talking about his belief. And, you know, he says quite clearly... I, I sometimes worry whether I've just been lucky. It's almost a little bit of imposter syndrome with Andre Rublev. And I think that could be a factor at the highest levels, but I don't think it affects him so much at tour level. And I think if he were to face Medvedev in the final, he would probably play without pressure on the basis of, you know, Medvedev is expected to win. Um, but I just think Rublev, when his game is on, uh, it's very difficult to stop him. But you do get to that point where it comes down to one or two points and does he really believe he could beat certain people? And on that, the jury is still out. There are always some lovely stories in tennis. We've had Aslan Karatsev that continues on the story of Karatsev and speaking about a lovely article, there's a great piece on atptour.com about Karatsev that's definitely well worth reading. We also have players coming back from injuries and just two names to throw at you. Tanasi Kokonakis. Everyone is touching everything wooden that he stays fit. And also for me, Kei Nishikuri, because this is, we hope, going to be an Olympic year in Japan. Yes, and I think we need to be aware of players who are making their breakthrough late on. I mean, Karatsev is 27. You know, he's not uh, uh, somebody just out of school. Um, I'm delighted to see Nishikori back there. I think the last four or five years for him have been based around being fit for the Tokyo Olympics. And maybe it's good that they were delayed a year because, you know, he was still coming back from um, his uh, surgery uh, last year. He then got covid um, but uh, I think he could be in good shape if the Olympics happen when they're supposed to later this year. 
and and yes, I, I think it's it's wonderful that uh, we see players who are able to come back after setbacks, and maybe they come back as richer people and therefore as richer tennis players because they have seen a little bit more and can work out matches in a way that they didn't before. Thanks to Gigi Salmon and Chris Bowers. And remember, you can join them and the rest of the team for live commentary every day from Miami and all the rest of the Masters 1000s. Look out for the listen button at the top of atptalk.com. Search for ATP Tennis Radio on TuneIn. And for this event, you can also find the live coverage on tennis.com. One of the most exciting matches of week one was American Francis Tiafoe's win over Brit Dan Evans. And Tiafoe's progress is now being guided by the former world number six, Wayne Ferreira. I spoke with the South African and asked him how the relationship came about. Well, you know, I, I was working with Marion Chilich for a little while and, um, you know, got back on tour with him and that. And then obviously I know a lot of the managers. I know everyone's still a lot of same people involved in the game. And, um, you know, I was... Got approached by someone that was looking, you know, Francis was looking for a coach. Uh, obviously, I'd been watching him over the years, felt he had a great ability to do well, and, you know, was, thought it would be a great opportunity. Yeah, what do you make of Francis, having worked with him closely now? Well, he's great. He's a great person, funny kid, got a good personality, uh, very relaxed in a lot of different ways. Uh, sometimes has to be a little bit more serious. So we're working on the, you know, trying to keep the aspects that are great about him in regards to being everyone's friend and, and having a likable personality, but working around sort of some of the things of growing up, having more responsibilities, more investment in the game. Uh, you know, there's, so, there's a lot of good about him, but a lot he still has to learn. I was going to ask you how you make him more consistent, because physically he just looks... He's in such great shape, but yeah. the results haven't necessarily come, and, and there have been some injuries. How do you make him more consistent? Well, first of all, I mean, he's, he's got a great body structure, and he's a strong boy, but he actually wasn't in very good shape when we first started, so we've been working really hard on the physical side, getting him into a much better physical condition, which we all know that when you're feeling physically good, it helps the mental side a little bit too. Um, we've been working on some structural things on the game, serve, serve volleys, forehand, and that kind of stuff, but also trying to spend a lot more time on just the, the day-to-day stuff, getting more invested from start of matches to finishing, concentration, focusing, investment, trying to you know stay longer in matches, fight harder. I just do those little things that make big differences. You know, you look at matches and matches are won and lost by a point here and there, and trying to make him more aware of you know the finer details and, and the importance of those little things. Well, case in point, the Dan Evans match. I mean, it was such an intense, tight game. You must have been delighted with that. Yeah, delighted. A lot of great uh, things that he did, different things that he hadn't done before. Obviously, would have liked for him to have served out the, the set of 5-3-40 love. Um, he started to get a little bit anxious um, and forced a little bit, but uh, did a really good job in coming back after losing the set and focused quite well. And then, in particular, I think the investment in the third set. Uh, sometimes when he gets to a third set, he, he loses a little bit mentally and, and the concentration levels. And Yesterday was a, was a good one. He, he was really involved, invested, he wanted to win. It, it was good, good from our standpoint, good growth. And funnily enough, Dusan Lajevic, a very similar player in many ways to Dan Evans. Yeah, yeah very much, and a very good player, great backhand. Uh, obviously more over the ball than, than slicing, and Dan plays an unusual game. Um, but Dusan is very good. We did play him one time in Antwerp last year and had a win over him indoors. Um, but I feel the match is going to be very, very different and very, very tough. 
Um, but you know, for us, it's a day-by-day process. We're happy with what we did yesterday. I just would like him to go out tomorrow and invest himself and do the right things. You know, I always tell him that you go out and do the right thing, and the, you know, the outcome is, is is not always in your hands. But if you go and put the best efforts in, hopefully, it turns your way. So, if you can go and do the right thing, we hope we get another win. Your appetite for winning was ferocious. It sounds like you're just the same as a coach. Yeah, but it's also it's also more just uh, feeling an accomplishment at the end of the day. If you don't win, you don't win. But you know, if you go out to battle each day and you put in 100%, you can't feel bad about the outcome. It's the days where you don't put in the effort and you don't try as hard as you can that you leave the court not feeling like you you did what you came out to do. So I'm just trying to you know win or win or loss. It's not really the most important. It's the effort put in to get to the end. Two years ago, Canada's Felix Auger Aliassime had a giant breakthrough in Miami, reaching the semi-finals as an 18-year-old. His coach then, and now, Frederic Fontaine. I mean, it's so far now <laughs> that I think yeah, we forgot now a lot of yeah, two years uh, since the, those uh, semi-finals in 2019. A lot of things changed, you know, of course, but uh, it's always uh, positive vibe, positive energy to come back in a tournament that you played well. So, he's fine. Now, he will win titles. There's no question of that. But he's lost seven finals now. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. Is there a little bit of a mental block that you need to help him with? No, I, I just want to, uh, to stick that uh, it will come. You know, it's, uh, it's a process. And uh, I will, uh, I will uh, look on the side that he, he already made seven finals. So, it's pretty consistent. And just finally, how are you helping him particularly here this week? Like every week, every day, we uh, we have to to uh, yeah to stick what we have to to work on, you know, to be to get ready for for the next match, and uh, and that's it, you know. We came from Acapulco, it was a great tournament, and here also that uh, I think it's important to say that uh, it's important that uh, yeah they are doing a great job to organize those kind of tournament in this period and uh, being able to play tennis, to play uh, our passion, and to be outside, you know, it's it's uh, it's really fresh. Uh, from coming from the indoor tournament last year, so it's, it's very positive. Felix lost out in 2019 to John Isner and two years on was beaten by the same giant American who is through to the last 16. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Having come through qualifying, 24-year-old American Ernesto Escobedo scored a good win against Paolo Lorenzi before succumbing to Dusan Lajevic. Nevertheless, after a difficult time with injury, it's been an encouraging tournament for Escobedo. Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy seven years of my life. I would say I turned pro in, at, at the end of 14. A lot of things has happened on, on the tour, but I'm, I'm very grateful for my career. And it's been a fun, long ride, but I'm still getting started. I mean, I'm still young. I'm still 24 years old, and I, and I still feel like the best days are to come. So... It's interesting you say career. You, you've almost had two careers in a way. And, and let me let me put it to you that you know, four years ago, 2017, you're 67 in the world. You're you know you're beating Daniel Medvedev. You're beating Dan Evans. Um, career high rankings. And obviously now we're working back towards that in a way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, four years ago, it just it happened so fast. You know, it, it happened so fast. And at the same time, I felt ready, but I didn't have the right people around me. But it was just a learning experience, you know, I mean, more of an experience of life, more than in tennis, because my tennis is there. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it was just getting like the right people around me and, and the right team around me. And then it's been great for the past two years, I would say. But yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been fun. 
I wouldn't change anything like the past five, six years at all. It's been an uh, experience, and I, I just have to uh, learn from it, and that's it. I really want to ask you about last year's U.S. Open because it was such a late call-up that you had. Um, but before that, can we just talk a little bit more about 2017? Because it does seem to be... Was that the best tennis you've played in your career? I mean, looking back at the Australian Open 2017, you put, what, four wins together, come through qualies, beat Daniel Medvedev. Yeah. Um, it, it, talk, talk to me about how you felt you were playing back then. I mean, I feel like I'm playing as good now. I feel way more prepared now than, than back in the day, for sure. Um, I was a new player on tour, so a lot of players didn't know much of me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm playing just as good now. I have a good team around me, and I'm super excited for the future. So talk to me about the difference between the team then and the team now, because I know right now you're coached by your dad, is that right? Ernesto Escobedo Sr.? I just changed last month. I was in Argentina for the past month training there. I'm with Javier Nel Nelbandian, with the brother of, of David. I've been with him for the past month, and I have my trainer there and my physio there, and I feel like it's been a really good change for me. It's always nice to like be with um, a Latin group just because my, my family is from Mexico. So I feel super comfortable like, like with them, and it's been great. I mean, back home too, I have a good support team with my family, and, and even Jan, Michael, help, helps me out back home. So it just feels a little bit more structured now than in the past, for sure. You have dealt with some injuries, haven't you, as a, as a, a relatively young player. Um, how tough is that as a young player? When you get such a good start, you get momentum going, you know, you... Four years ago, you came through qualies here in Miami or at Crandon Park, and then all of a sudden to have that taken away and have to rebuild. Give us an idea of how tough that is. Yeah, it was so tough. I mean, I was playing her for two years, and I I was here for two years. I had a big bone bruise in my ankle for two years. That was a really tough part of my life just because uh, I, I didn't feel like stopping, and I didn't have the right people around me telling me to stop because I was so stubborn of just like being out there on the court. I wasn't getting into like huge tournaments. Looking back at it, I could have stopped for a little bit, get it healthy in two, three months, but I lingered it for, for two years. And I, I took a big price of that, uh, huge in my career, but at the same time, it was a learning experience. Just so that if it does happen again, I will be way more prepared now. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, dealing with injuries is more me- mental than physical for sure it is what was the one moment or even the one person who made you that made you think I'm go- I've, I've got to take care of this now can you remember yes this was when two years ago I was uh, I hired Jan as my coach that's Jan Michael Gamble yeah, Jan my, Michael Gamble and then I hired him in March and then he just told me hey no tournaments for three months we're gonna train get you back like before get your confidence back and since then like it's been awesome since then but but like just having somebody just like telling me like straight up what I needed like to do it was awesome and what did you need to do I just had to start from zero start from zero seriously just like 
go back to the drawing drawing board, start start from zero, and just learn from the past. Take the good and bad that bad things from it, and that's it. But、uh, but yeah, just like staying very positive. I'm still young. I'm 24. A lot of people think that like I'm much older than I am, you know. So just like having that perspective in life that like I'm still young and knock on wood, I could have an incredible 10 years of tennis left. So. An old head, an old head on young shoulders, as yeah, they say. In the context of all this, the opportunity that came up at Flushing Meadows last year, with the last minute, you were down to play doubles, I believe,、yes. and then at the last minute, I think Benoit Paire pulled out because of COVID. You got a space to play singles. <sighs> Talk to me about that. I mean, it's it's almost like a lifeline, isn't it? It was a crazy experience because, like, I didn't get the wild card. I was the third American out, and they can they. Completely skipped me. I'm not sure why, but I, I still went to play doubles, and that put me one out of singles as the highest alternate there. And when Pair pulled out, I was number two actually because Granollers was number one. So he he got in. It's a Tuesday morning. He's about to play in a couple hours, but he pulls out, which I I was so so surprised why he. He pulled out at the end, so I just got my stuff ready and play. So you're here literally two hours before you play that you're going to play. What's that yeah, like? Pretty much. I mean, I, I felt like there was n- no pressure. I felt like I was just going to go go out there on court with a good game plan, and, and that's it. But like, I think it was a crazy experience for sure. Really crazy. And just to put it in perspective. The paycheck was a tenth of your career earnings. A hundred thousand dollars for that win、yeah. <laughs> is like ten percent of your career earnings. So, I know it's it's not as simple as that, but that's got to be life changing as well in a small way. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, I don't play for money. I'm just here to have a good time, to have a good career. Of course, money is important to like pay for stuff, pay for my life, pay for my bills. But at the end, at the end of of the day. I'm not gonna take it with me afterwards. So it's just, it's just something special. It, it's something nice to have, but it's not everything for me. Has it been a springboard for where you are now? Do you, do you feel like you're kind of on the cusp of, you know, an, another big breakthrough in in the comeback? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a great team around me. I'm feeling confident. I'm feeling very positive right now.、Um, I'm feeling great. I just have to、uh, do the work in day in day out, and that's it.、Uh, there's no secrets out here. It's just work hard and play. When the hard work does take its toll on bodies and minds, the tour has backup services in place. I spoke about that here in Miami with Todd Ellenbecker, the ATP's vice president for medical services. We have a group of 24 physiotherapists that basically travel to both、uh, some challenger events and all our ATP Tour events. And the main services we provide are injury prevention and injury treatment. So on any given tournament,、uh, our physios are involved with taking care of the players,、uh, both pre-match, post-match, helping out with some rehabilitation and exercise-based things. But the main thing is really evaluating and treating their day-to-day injuries on tour. Um, obviously, the players also have physicians that are available to them should they have an illness、uh, or other types of medical needs. But、uh, our physios are the bulk of what's、uh, involved in ATP medical services. And how has it changed 
during this COVID period. So a couple things happened during the during the actual shutdown when we actually weren't playing events is we had our physios actually reaching out to players because in some some instances, players did not have any resources for them in their home communities and their home uh, cities and countries and things of that nature. And so we were able to reach out to players, provide them with exercises during that COVID period. Uh, we were able to ask her questions about their injuries, et cetera. And, and now that we're back on tour, some of the changes with ATP medical services are that many of the services are now provided not at the site. As strange as that sounds, what we're trying to do for safety is offload many of the services that traditionally have been available at the site and have them performed at the hotel where the players can actually be in their rooms, come down safely, get a treatment of physio, get massage, um, some of the other things that we do, work out at the gym, etc. Things that historically have happened at the actual tournament site, we've actually offloaded those items and those services to the hotel for safety. So what happens at the site is really just preparation for match, recovery after the match, and any treatments, of course, for court calls and things where our physios actually would go on the court and assist the player during their match. And that's all the visible medical assistance. In terms of the, the invisible medical help, that, uh, you know, the, the, what I, and what I mean by that is the mental health side of players, um, some of them have intimated a little bit recently that, you know, that life in the bubble isn't easy all of the time. I was just wondering how has that impacted what you're providing for the players? Excellent question, because we know any change to routine is stressful to an athlete. And certainly COVID has interrupted many of the routines that every athlete has in virtually every sport. Tennis is no exception. So the ATP has used Headspace and uh, Sporting Chance, which are two uh, services available to players basically around the clock where they can reach out and have assistance with a medical health care professional to be able to assist them if they have stressors or other, other things from a mental health perspective. And we realize that you know, while traditionally we see visibly injuries to the knee or injuries to the shoulder, we know that there's a lot of mental stress. Tennis is a very stressful event. And so these are services that we're happy to provide for the players and have them utilize as they see fit. Talk to me a little bit more about Headspace. How do they use it? Well, basically, it's, a, it, it's a, pro, a process that allows them to go through mindfulness-type routines, stress reductions, and things like that that will assist them with some of the stressors that they undergo during the tour. And the beauty of that is that it's something that's accessible to them no matter where they are. It's a distance-based thing. Um, obviously, you'd say, well, what if you had a sports psychologist who was there or a, a, someone who had that background that was at all the tournaments? You know, that's a great chance. The problem, though, is uh, with a worldwide game, it's very, very difficult to have people in all those locations and so the beauty of these services are that they can be accessed from around the world on multiple time zones when the athlete really needs it and we found that that's one of the more important things is to have that accessibility as well and anonymously presumably absolutely yeah so there's that confidence there that it is anonymous and sporting chance sporting chance is exactly that it's a company that uh, has all levels of mental health care professionals that are there to be able to assist our players should they have a crisis, for example, something that requires not just relaxation and some of the other mindfulness things that uh, Headspace involves, but if there's actually a, a more detailed or, or more critical service that's required, they have a referral network in place and can provide services for players in the area of mental health. Has there been a tougher time for players than what they're going through right now? 
I can't think of anything for all of us, not only just the players, but for staff and for everyone in the world, as a matter of fact. It's an extremely stressful time because all our routines have been interrupted. And uh, you'd have to say that the players are adapting amazingly well. We're very proud of you know, the way players, the quality of the play and the way they've been able to maintain their level, uh, their, their athleticism and everything that goes with it. But uh, it certainly is a very stressful time, no question. Difficulty, struggle and success in adversity are all things Mackenzie McDonald has become familiar with over the past few years. But it's great to see the young American back on tour, having recovered from serious injury. Yeah, uh, brutal. I mean, you know, I've always been a very healthy, healthy player and person. You know, I've uh, never had anything more than just, you know, maybe a rolled ankle or, you know, a little wrist, something. I haven't been out of the game for more than couple days to be honest um and you know i was honestly at my peak of performance i was playing great i was at my career high hitting career highs every week at that point i had some unbelievable results you know i even got to like quarterfinals of a 500 and had a lot of really good statement wins i was building momentum and i was actually going to go into the grass season which i was looking forward to to defend you know my good results on the grass and and wimbledon but I mean, that came to a massive pause when, uh, yeah, I played a five-setter and, you know, I was really tired after that. I, I ended up losing it and I had doubles actually the next day and I tore my hamstring um, almost off the bone playing a doubles match at 11 a.m. You know, on a cold, rainy day in, uh, in France. So, yeah. And how do you recover from tearing the hamstring almost off the bone? How does one recover from something like that? So it was fully necessary to get surgery. So I actually got in for surgery eight days later after a lot of scans and some tough traveling back to the States. Yeah, surgery and a long, long waiting process. If, if you know anyone that's torn their hammy and gotten that surgery, it's, it's like, you know, reattaching paper at the start, um, sewing it back together. So you're not able to move at all or else you can re-rupture it and start the whole process over and and that and that does happen but for me I was really patient it really tests your patience and uh but also what was really tough for me was just you know being at the peak and like working so hard to get up there and then just having it kind of ripped away I mean you hear stories about people who you know they can't get out of a hospital bed for two or three days and therefore they can barely walk and we're talking about several weeks where you're not allowed to move I mean you did your whole muscle tone just disappear yeah, I have an insane photo of the atrophy on my right leg compared to my left after only about two weeks of not moving it. I mean, you'd be amazed if you, because you really have to completely shut off all the muscles in your leg. Like, they want you to just absolutely be a rock and just sit. So I made my way, I got in the back car or back seat of the car after surgery. After, well, I got the surgery, did four days at the hospital, and in that area laid in bed the whole time on meds and then once I was able to kind of get into a car I laid down flat in the back seat my mom drove me back to my apartment in Lake Nona from where I got my surgery at the Andrews Institute and I did not leave my couch or my apartment for the next about three weeks going to the bathroom was as far as I went but even that was very tough so I had to improvise I'm not going to get into detail for that and then uh, even with I mean showering i Luckily, my girlfriend came and I mean, I she showered me about once every five days or so. That's all. I mean, I, I just couldn't move for a little bit. And then 
and then I could try to, you know, get on, and then it was crutches, and then it was 10% weight on the right leg, and then it was 20, then it was 30, and that's increments by a week, and then it's one pound weight on the hamstring for a week, then it's two pounds, and then you get to go three pounds. So you can imagine how long that process is. And how did you cope with it mentally? I mean, you're a professional athlete. You rely on your fitness, and you're seeing your fitness disappear while you have to lie still. What mental tricks did you play to get yourself through this? Um, I'm going to be honest. I lost my mind. I mean, it wasn't easy at all. I just tried to distract myself, which was tough. I mean, I, I sat there, you know. I mean, I was. I just watched tennis, and I was honestly really jealous of all the people that could be playing and I'd never thought you know that would happen to me and the best way to do it was just distract myself so I mean I, I ended up finding the positives with doing UCLA classes what did you get into at UCLA well I went there uh, before I went pro so I was able to the timing with my injury actually worked out for the classes if that I mean if you can say work worked out but I did uh, summer courses uh, just to pick up on on my major and my minor and did five classes there so that kept me very busy which was great at the time and then I mean other than that I did a little bit of upper body I mean I really couldn't do it or I couldn't do any lower body but and my upper body I had to be laying down on the ground to do it because they really didn't want me using any sort of my leg at all I was lucky my girlfriend could spend some time with me but it wasn't easy did you have any particular interests or any particular friends or any particular activities that kept you distracted? I mean, I talked to my friends a bit, but um, I mean, again, it wasn't like anyone could come see me. It was the peak of the European swing. I had a couple friends come over and it wasn't much. I was stuck in Florida, you know, all my family's in California. So, I mean, even, you know, I, I didn't see my dad for a while or my sister, my mom left after my surgery because she had to get back but I mean I was lucky my sister and her dad were able to come and be with me and um, oh and I had my uh, girlfriend's dog too that was actually that was probably the best part I mean I, I had a lovely dog with me and uh, what's it a dog it's a chihuahua it's a small one which is good because if it was a big one I'd probably re-rupture re it but I had a small chihuahua named Boozy and me and Chanel love her so it was it was actually that made it a hundred times better so if you tear your hamstring just get just get a dog <laughs> I suppose the obvious question is what was the lowest point but perhaps I should be more positive and say where did you first start to see the light at the end of the tunnel lowest point was probably when I was able to get out after a while realization of how hard this comeback was going to be and I was laying on the ground doing like an arm workout and I just started tearing up and crying to be honest I was just I couldn't believe how far gone I was from from the sport and how far away it was going to be to come back and I mean and how much I just absolutely hated kind of what happened um, so that was probably the lowest point and that was probably only maybe a month into into doing it I mean some miraculous days for me were you know the first day I could step on the treadmill the first day you know I could jog a little bit underwater I remember when I could travel for the first time I got out immediately and saw my girlfriend and then uh, I got to go see my family then I went to US Open I actually did some commentating which helped distract me as well and then once I got back from the US Open I was actually able to more so train kind of with hitting balls and kind of starting to come back 
And you had a practice session with Roger Federer at one stage. Was that on the comeback trail or was that before you um, had the injury? Um, that was before. I've, pract I've actually practiced with him quite a bit. Um, went to Dubai for a couple weeks for off-season when I was just out of college. And then I went to Zurich a couple times and trained with him um, on grass there before Wimbledon twice. Um, I've hit with him at you know Cincy and U.S. Open. He actually texted me after I won my uh, round of 32 match to make it into the round of 16. So um, I'd like to say he's a good friend. I mean, he's just, he's the nicest guy, honestly. Um, but it's pretty cool, you know, having a little bit of connection with Roger Federer. And does that keep you going during the difficult months, knowing that you'd practiced with him, knowing that you'd seen the kind of uh, application that he was happy to put in without the kind of injury that you'd had? Yeah, I mean, what really kept me going is like, I mean, honestly, moments like this, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate I was, I had success, you know, in those first couple of years of college, you know, I mean, if I had that injury before, like right out of college and didn't have any pro success, didn't make it top 100 or, or had some good runs, you know, I would have doubted a lot more. And honestly, financially, too, I wouldn't have been as in a good spot. But, I, you know, you could say it could be worse. I mean, for me, you know, I had a really bad injury and like, you know, it happens in this sport and it was something I just haven't been through and people are going to go through it and, you know, you're going to see it a lot. I mean, hopefully there's not an uptick with it with all this uh, pandemic stuff and all the playing that's going on. But I mean, injuries are part of sports and it was something I had to learn. And, and now when I play, even here, I lost today. But honestly, I'm thinking in my head, I'm walking away healthy. And that's actually a massive win. And how are you different as a tennis player, having gone through all that compared to before uh, Roland Garros 2019? I have to say I'm actually way smarter <laughs> because I took some for granted, actually. You know, I feel I think I was just young, you know, on tour. Um, I was really headstrong about, you know, really making pushes and, 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 and keep pushing. But now I'm more I'm thinking more about all the other variables and, and my mental and, you know, kind of intertwining all the factors that come into play to make sure I'm, you know, um, making the most of me being on tour. So, I mean, after that, I definitely have a different mindset. And you rely a lot on your fitness. You're obviously not the tallest guy on the circuit, but you move around very well, cover a lot of ground. To what extent do you feel that you are now a stronger player overall than you were before because of all the work you've had to put in? Um, yeah, I feel like... I've done an awesome job fitness-wise. Even before the injury, even after the injury, I think my fitness is there and, and it's showing because I'm, you know, lasting in these matches. I'm, it's not coming down to, to the fitness. It's, it's more about the tennis, which is uh, something you can always kind of improve and, and take control over. So, um, yeah, no, I'm super happy with, with my physicality at the moment. There's a lot of things that people go through in life, whatever walk of life they're in you've been through a fair amount you've come out the other side thanks to a lot of work is there anything you would say to people you have a certain amount of wisdom now what would you say to people in terms of getting through the hard times i would say you know even through this pandemic you know we're learning what's important i mean honestly through this pandemic I've, i feel like family is so important or like you know i when i was young younger on tour you know i thought tennis is just everything you know, I, I mean, I lived and breathed it, which I still do. But 
you know, at the end of the day, there's there's a lot more to it. I'd say, you know, you got to enjoy, um, you know, multiple things and have balance as well. Mackie McDonald speaking there with Chris Bowers, and it was a positive Miami for McDonald, battling through qualifying and the first round against Vasek Pospisil before a narrow loss to John Isner. That is all for this week's pod. Remember, we're live all day, every day from Miami on the ATP Tennis Radio channel. Join Gigi and the team from 30 minutes before the first ball is struck every day at the Miami Open, presented by Ito. Join us again this time next week, by which time we'll be looking back on the final here and looking ahead to the European clay court swing. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis.